Welcome back to Adding Insult to Injury. My name is Alexis and I'm your host. I know that I haven't posted a new episode in a while and that's really because I was just trying to figure out what content I wanted to talk about, how I wanted to organize that content into these different episodes. And I think I finally have a rough outline. And today, I decided it would be a good day to talk about what I learned through my spinal cord injury, the things that I didn't realize were a part of spinal cord injuries and paralysis, and what my experiences have been with those, because I used to think that paralysis and spinal cord injuries only affected the limbs, your legs, and your arms, and your hands. I didn't know all the other things that were involved, and you probably don't either. So, I'm going to talk about those things. But first, I kind of wanted to get into some statistics about spinal cords because September is Spinal Cord Injury Awareness Month. Yay! Let's talk about it. Um, So, first of all, let's talk about the spine. Your spine runs from your neck all the way down to your little tailbone sticking out your butt. Um, you have your cervical spinal cord, which is in your neck, basically. You have the thoracic spinal cord, which is like your upper middle back, your lumbar spinal cord, which is like your lower middle back, and then you have your sacral spine, which is your your tailbone. Um, and that is where the injury occurs, in case you didn't know. I'm just going to put it out there simply for you. So in the United States, we have about 329 million Americans living here. And of those 329 million Americans, 0.0008% have suffered a spinal cord injury, which is about 250,000 people in the U.S. So a very, very tiny community. That's like two of Charleston, South Carolina. Maybe not even two. Um, but we're, we're here and we exist, small community or not, we're here. And to that community, there are 12,500 new initiates every year. Um, I think it's 78% of those. Actually, I'm on a website right now. So, there are 12,500 new spinal cord injuries that occur in the U.S. every year. Um, Spinal cord injuries can be complete, which is where the spinal cord is entirely injured or severed, and that's the most serious, and that's the least treatable. Um, Incomplete spinal cord injuries, which is what I have, is a result from a compression injury or some other damage being afflicted to the spinal cord, but it doesn't totally sever the connection from the brain to your cord and then the rest of your body. It can severely impact how those signals are put out, but there's still some signals that are being pushed to the cord. And there's also a greater chance of regaining feeling and movement back below that side of injury. 
Um, below that site of injury, I mean, depending on where your spinal cord is injured, that affects how far down the body is injured, is affected. So my injury is at T12 L1, and that means that I'm affected from the waist down. Um, most spinal cord injuries are from auto accidents. Um, that's the leading cause of spinal cord injuries. The second leading cause of spinal cord injuries is falls. And that's where I got my spinal cord injury from. It was about a 20 foot fall from a tree. Um, and then you have other injuries like gunshot wounds, diving injuries, which I have a friend who suffered a traumatic brain injury from a diving injury. Um, I have a friend who's very near and dear to my heart, who is my mentor in rehab. She was injured in a car accident. Um, falling objects could injure you, surgical complications, different diseases can affect the spinal cord injury or affect the spinal cord and cause injury. There's bicycle accidents, just sports in general can cause injuries. So there's a lot of different ways to get a spinal cord injury. And while we are a small community in the grand scheme of things, it's not that hard to injure your spinal cord. Um, and so it's just, it's really good to be cautious of the activities that you're getting into and knowing the risks involved with those which is where I kind of screwed up. I thought I was invincible at the time of my accident, and clearly I am not. Um, so spinal cord uh, injuries can be treated through surgery, which is what I went through. I had a surgery where they pulled all the little bone fragments off of my spinal cord so we could decompress the spinal cord. They put in some rods and some screws to add extra support to my spine. And then I was in rehab for about two months after that, learning how to live in a wheelchair, trying to gain movement and feeling back and having my muscles just remember how to do the things that it was already doing before the injury. But now a little hard to get those muscles to, to do what I want them to when your brain isn't making that connection. Um, some other issues that come from having a spinal cord injury are things like breathing. Um, I fortunately don't have any issues with breathing, breathing because my injury is so high up. There's of course bowel and bladder function that is decreased, which I'll talk about here shortly. There's temperature regulation issues, which I don't have to worry about, thankfully. Um, there's, of course, chronic pain that comes with it. There's the fear of getting bed sores from sitting on skin for too long and cutting off that blood supply. Or if you have an injury somewhere on your body that you can't feel, you might not know that you have that injury. And so that increases your risk for infection and that can cause even more issues. Um, of course, there's changes in mood and personality. I mean, it's a traumatic event. And your brain doesn't really know how to handle that. Um, there's loss of libido or sexual function altogether, which I do want to talk about, but that's going to be an episode for another time because there's so much to be said about that 
Um, and there's just all sorts of spinal cord injury symptoms that I didn't know about until I had a spinal cord injury and that, you know, I had to learn about. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the symptoms that I live with, the symptoms that I had to learn about, and what it's like living with those symptoms. So I want to talk about what I thought paralysis looked like and what I've learned from being paralyzed myself and living with a spinal cord injury. Um, I used to think paralysis was limited to the limbs and only included things like the loss of ability to walk or do sensations on the skin, lack of dexterity in the hands and fingers. I didn't know at the age of 21 I would get so up close and personal with spinal cord injuries and learn just how debilitating nerve damage can be. But I did. And before I really get into the way spinal cord injury affects my life, I want to explain something I feel like most people don't realize. Paralysis is on a very large spectrum. And this was something I had to learn too. You probably come across strangers regularly who have suffered from paralysis and recovered enough to walk around looking like nothing ever happened to them. On the total opposite end of the spectrum, you have people who are so affected that they can't move anything from the neck down and will require assistance for the rest of their lives for the simplest tasks from getting out of bed, to showering, to eating, to just turning on the television. And then there's everyone else in the middle. Maybe they need help with some daily tasks or just need help keeping their home tidy. Or maybe they don't need any help at all and have found total independence while moving about the world in a wheelchair. Or there are some people who are able to walk everywhere with the aid of a cane, braces, crutches, a walker. I'm somewhere in the middle. I am 100% independent, live on my own, work almost full time, I go grocery shopping on my own, I attend concerts, and I can even go on short hikes with the aid of braces and crutches. If I have a good idea of how much I'll be walking and it makes sense, I prefer to walk when I can. If I do use my chair out and something is high on a shelf or I want to sit in a bar stool or just get out of my chair for any reason, I can do that. It doesn't mean I don't need my chair, it just means I have enough strength and balance to do that particular task at hand. It's confusing from an outsider's perspective and I've often been accused of not being disabled, of just faking it, simply because people incorrectly assume that paralysis means no movement whatsoever. Like I said earlier, my injury is an incomplete spinal cord injury at the T12 L1 level or in the middle of the back. So that means I basically have a lack of sensation and mobility starting at the waist. So I have loss of sensation in the legs and the feet in my butt. I have a loss of sensation in my bladder, in my GI system, in my vagina. These are all a lot of sensations that I didn't think were affected by paralysis. And boy, have I learned. <laughs> in the beginning, I couldn't move my legs or feet at all. I spent the first few weeks in rehab moving my legs only because my therapists were moving them for me. Moving from my bed to my chair, my chair to the toilet, from the ground to my chair, it all seemed impossible. I couldn't tell where my legs were at all without looking at them. And as I continued my rehab, learning not only how to live in a wheelchair, but also training to get my nerves to refire, my muscles to remember, 
I slowly began gaining feeling back. You could swing my legs at the hips to practice walking. Not an ideal gait, but better than nothing at all. Now most of my mobility loss is from the knees below. I still have weakness in the hips, and it's most obvious when I opt to walk instead of using my chair. I still have pretty much no control over my ankles, and my knees like to hyperextend. And because of my lack of control in those joints, and then having no sensation in my feet, I still need to use braces to hold my ankles in place when I walk, and crutches to help hold me up due to my lack of balance and ankle mobility. And because I can't feel my feet, I've lost count of how many times I've either lost a shoe while I was out and about, at a show, at a restaurant, at a bar, or I just totally forgot to put shoes on at all. I keep an emergency pair of shoes in my car now because I'll get halfway down the road to work or wherever it is I'm going, look down and realize that I'm totally barefoot. So <laughs> if you're new to spinal cord injury, new to paralysis, new to any of this, keep an extra pair of shoes in your car. You'll thank yourself for it later because I hated having to tell my boss I was late because I forgot to put shoes on. I knew back pain would be an issue, but I don't think I ever knew what other agony was possible until I experienced for the first time myself. I remember laying in the hospital bed while in rehab, having not felt anything waist down for a couple of weeks. My nurse for the day was in the room, checking my stats for the morning, when I was suddenly struck with the sensation of what I imagine being struck by lightning to feel like. A visceral jolt of electricity surged through my legs, and my immediate response was to scream, panic, snatch my nurse's hand, and squeeze it for dear life. Through shallow sobs, I begged for something, anything to make the sensation go away, trying desperately to describe the seemingly indescribable misery. And that's when I learned about nerve pain. For months, I downed high doses of gabapentin, an anticonvulsant used to treat neuropathy by altering the activity of neurotransmitters. Knowing how gabapentin already altered my compromised neurotransmitters, along with a constant feeling of being on a high that I had no control over, I eventually weaned myself off. And while I still suffer from chronic nerve pain, I've learned to live with it and now have a more natural approach to curbing the more severe days. I actually had a very painful day yesterday and I was so taken aback because it has been so long since my nerve pain reared up like that and it was consistent and undying. I got up in the morning, had pain, went and met my friend for our yoga session, was doing yoga through the pain, grabbed lunch with her after yoga and I couldn't even focus on eating my lunch. It was so bad. Now, I could be taking gabapentin, and I could be taking muscle relaxers, and I could be taking all of these other things to help me with my pain. And I'm not saying I'm any better of a person because I don't take those pills. But I am very proud of myself for not 
taking those pills because they had me on a lot of medication when I was in the hospital for back pain, for nerve pain, for this, for that, whatever it is that they wanted to put in my cocktail, they could. And I appreciated it the first few weeks. But looking at it now, as painful as those days can be, I'm really, really thankful that I don't take those pills. And I think part of me not taking those pills has allowed me to cope with pain on the other days. So yesterday might have been terrible. I came home and I took my special medicine and then I took a nap. But all the other days that I have nerve pain rearing up aren't usually that bad. So we've talked about pain. We've talked about the lack of control and feeling that I have concerning my limbs. I want to get into toilet talk now because I never thought about how people with paralysis might have issues related to the simple task of just peeing or taking a shit. It's not something I thought about. And I think I had to think about it. But here we go. There are people who maybe just can't feel when they have to go. Or maybe you can't go at all. Or maybe worse than not going, you just can't stop it from coming. One of the first tests they performed on me when I was initially admitted to the hospital where I would receive my surgery was to figure out what I couldn't, couldn't feel, could and could not move, and how I responded to certain stimuli, and that included testing what they call an anal wink. Yeah, (laughs) they wanted to see if I was a tight ass or loosey-goosey down there. Of all the options I was faced with, being a tight ass was the most cardinal. Like most people, I used to be able to tell when I had to poop could decide if I wanted to handle my business then and there or wait for access to a more optimal porcelain throne. Now I had to learn to insert medicine properly to coerce my muscles to relax so I could take a proper, very planned daily poo. Of course, not having a properly functioning GI system is less than ideal, but at least I would not be releasing my bowels every time waste passed through my colon like other victims of a similar disability. To this day, I still suffer from less than relaxing defecation. In the early days, I also had to learn to use a catheter. I faced a couple of dilemmas with my bladder. I couldn't tell when my bladder was filling up, and then when it was full, I had no I had no warning before my urine would begin to spill out all over myself. So the answer to that was to use a plastic tube inserted in my urethra to release the contents on a consistent four to six hour schedule. Watch my liquid intake and wear a super sexy adult diaper in the case of an accident. I used catheters for years until I started practicing yoga as a form of therapy, utilizing breathing exercises and kegels I couldn't actually feel to build up the strength in those muscles again to slowly gain more control and somehow miraculously begin to get feeling back. 
today I still have to be cautious to make a dash for the bathroom when I feel the sensation of a full bladder, but now I have a wider window and I can squeeze those holes at least for a little bit. I still wear incontinence pads because I can never be too sure, but now my super kinky incontinence underwear are reserved for when I take my anal relaxing medicine just as a precaution because that medicine is absolute napalm for the bowels. So, on top of all the physiological detriments, I now suffer from the cage that is my own mind, which is an entire conversation in its own right, an episode I definitely plan on doing in the future. I already knew I suffered from some anxiety and depression before my injury, and I found ways to cope. Tools to busy my mind to deter a spiral into an abyss of false narratives created by my quizzling brain. Usually my coping mechanisms included heading to a county park for a day to go on a casual bike ride, maybe throw in a hike, or I could easily head to the beach for the day to wash away my anxieties in the sea. Not only did I now have to deal with a tsunami of anxiety depression accompanied by PTSD, I'd also have to learn new, more accessible ways to cope with all the dark clouds in my head. A lifelong learning process. I've learned to be more gentle with myself on my darkest days. I mean, I was only 21 when my injury happened. I was still figuring out who I was and how I fit into the world. Everything I'd known about myself had been dramatically ripped away, and I was starting from scratch, all the way down to learning how to get dressed again. I was forced to rethink my entire life plan, quit nursing school, quit my job as a server, which I genuinely loved at the time, and be faced with the fact that many of the jobs I once thought I was capable of were now no longer an option. It's incredibly hard to live life as an active, constantly moving vessel to one with many restrictions. How can one's mind prepare for that kind of trauma? I've done a lot of introspection over the last couple of years. It has helped me get a grip on my mental health, but there's still more work to be done. 2020 has been a hellhole for pretty much everyone on earth, but it did surprise me with the time to learn new skills and the time to invest in hobbies I've been eyeing for a while, and that has been a breath of fresh air for my mental health. So, I think 2020 for that opportunity. Although, this was probably the worst year to decide to move into an apartment by myself, Oh yes, when I said I live independently on my own in an apartment, I meant I decided to move into my own apartment at the beginning of 2020, not knowing what a shit show this year would be. And now it's just me and my cat, and I go to work, and I come home, and I go to work, and I come home. It's just not an ideal time to live by yourself. So if you were thinking about it this year, if you already haven't done it, don't do it. Just wait. Because 2021 is probably also going to come with its own struggles that we've carried into from 2020. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So, there's a lot of things that I didn't discuss today. 
a lot of things that I'm saving for other episodes. We'll dive deeper into the issue of mental health and what I think is a toxic positivity culture we have going on right now. I'm definitely going to dive in deeper on sex. I just, I think it's so important to talk about as a whole because it's such a taboo subject when it shouldn't be. And then especially for those with disabilities because there's so much to be talked about there. There's so much to open up and there's so much to really just let people know about. And then hopefully other people with disabilities will hear this episode and and learn some things to help them cope with their disability too. So that's a little bit about what spinal cord injury looks like for me, how I live with it, how it affects my body and my body's ability to function. And I hope that's it's an eye-opener because... Like I said, I used to think that paralysis only affected the limbs. I didn't realize it affected your bowel and bladder organs or your sexual organs or things like that. I didn't know the fear of infections on the parts of the body that you can't feel or the possibility of bed sores whenever you're sitting in one place for too long. And I hope that this helps broaden your idea of what paralysis looks like and you're not quick to judge someone because you saw their legs moving in a wheelchair which by the way yes I have had someone try to call me out for faking my disability because oh but I saw her legs move okay lady maybe if you educated yourself maybe if you listened to my podcast you would know why I was able to move my legs So, that being said, I would like to end this podcast with a little piece of advice. Walkers, stop asking people why they're in wheelchairs. A, it's none of your business, and you know you're just being nosy. B, Who wants to talk about something traumatic that's happened in their life every time a nosy stranger decides to stick their nose in their business? I sure don't. If you tell me your most traumatic experience in your life first, I'll tell you mine. Maybe, if I'm feeling like it. We'll see how traumatic your experience is and see if it even matches up. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening to this second episode of adding insult to injury and I promise I'm going to try to be better about getting more consistent episodes out there more than once a month I hope so I hope you guys learned something thank you so much for listening don't forget to break down those barriers and bridge those gaps and I'll talk to y'all next time